word. It is your living word. It is from the living God. It comes to us with all the truthfulness and the authority and the sufficiency of your own character and your own majesty. We ask now that as we open it together, that you, Holy Spirit, would be our teacher, that you would fulfill your ministry to reveal to us the glory of Jesus Christ, all to the praise of the glory of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. This is, of course, Resurrection Sunday. And before I say anything else, I just want to remind that uh, everybody gave themselves away this morning by being here on time for breakfast. So apparently, waffles uh, are going to be the draw to get us here uh, early for Sunday school. But we can do it. But this is Resurrection Sunday. That was a resurrection bref- uh, breakfast, of course. And while uh, very often in the past we've done a message uh, somehow directly related to some aspect of the, re- the resurrection, uh, this morning it's very appropriate that we go back to the book of Revelation and continue our look at the risen Christ's message to the church. Indeed, it is very appropriate that as we listen to his message, we are actually listening to a word from the risen Lord, who is right now at the right hand of the Father, and again, who speaks to us through his word. Indeed, as we remember from last week, he introduced himself to the church at Smyrna as the first and the last, the one who was dead and has come to life. In other words, the very message begins with an affirmation of, a declaration of his credentials as the risen Lord to speak to his church with all authority and with all of his glory. And so that's where we will turn again this morning. So begin with me by reading in Revelation chapter 2 verses 8 through 11 and then we'll look at the text closely. Beginning in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write... The first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. This is, of course, the message, the second message of Christ to the seven churches, this being the church of Smyrna. We noted last week briefly the context of the church. It was a major city in the Roman Empire. It was a privileged city. It was one particularly dedicated to the cultus of the emperor, uh, building a statue or a, a temple to Emperor Tiberius, the first to do so, and one of the first to uh, build a temple to Rome itself. And so they were deeply embedded into the ideology of the Roman Empire. It was also a place where there was a large congregation of Jews that are going to be mentioned here that are a part of the persecution that would also come to the church. And as we noted, that he, the message comes from him who identifies himself in a way that was particularly designed to the message that he was going to bring to them. This is a church living in that city who was persecuted, who was experiencing conflict and tribulation, and he wanted to remind them that for some it would cost them their lives, they would be faithful unto death, but the one who is speaking to them is the one who has overcome death. He is the one who declares the end from the beginning, and therefore he is to be trusted. And he noted as well that he gives them a commendation. Smyrna is only one of only two churches that have no rebuke, no negative word from the Lord Jesus Christ, no correction given to them. It is only a word of affirmation of them as a church and an encouragement to them to remain faithful in uh, what they are doing, and that is enduring persecution. And we noted as well, and I want to remind us that this is an example, part of a theme that runs through this is that things are not always what they seem. In fact, the way from God views things and the way man views things are very uh, often at polar opposites, where the way that it appears to our eyes naturally is not the way that things actually are, and that is the glory of Revelation. 
And particularly the apocalypse, it pulls back, as it were, the curtain of what we see merely from earthly means to see what actually is going on in eternal truths from an eternal God who has spoken to us. Let me give you just one example of this before we look at the church at Smyrna. If we have in 1 Corinthians, and just I'll just read it, he says this. He says, The foolishness of God in 1 Corinthians 1.25 is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. God has chosen what is weak in the world to show his strength. He has chosen what the world sees as foolish and what is foolish in the world to display his wisdom. He has chosen to act this way because it displays his glory. And so to those who are suffering from the unbelieving perspective, these are the weak, these are the shameful, these are the despised, these are the scum of the earth. But from God's perspective, they are his treasured possession, his redeemed, and the ones who will share in his ultimate victory in the establishment of his kingdom. Things are not always what they seem. And so these are his faithful ones who are experiencing persecution. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. He tells them later that the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. And we noted there are two, two then, with this dual perspective, ways that this persecution is coming that are being identified. From the human perspective, it's coming from the Jewish nation, who in many ways are leading the offense here. They were offended at the Christian proclamation of the deity of Christ, of Christ as their crucified Messiah, and they were offended over their, they had a jealousy over the success of the gospel in that area. We see that even throughout the book of Acts. We have the Gentiles who were enraged at the church because of their lack of conformity to emperor worship. They saw that as a threat to a stable society. They saw them as rebels against authority. In some cases, they saw them as haters of God. Even atheists, they called them in the early phases of the church because they denied the pluralistic view of God or many gods that they held in that culture. In some extreme cases, they were accused of cannibalism because of the Lord's Supper, incest because of the family idea identity as brother and sister of those who were Christians and haters of humanity because by their rejection of God they saw that as inciting the anger of the gods that would then come upon the nation. And so they were despised, they were hated, they were seen in many cases as rebels and the cause for many of the problems in Rome. As a matter of fact, before this, in around 60 AD, there was, as we're familiar with many of us, the Neronian persecution in which it is, uh, by and large, credibly understood that Nero blamed the Christians for many of the problems that were in the Roman Empire, and he used that as a justification to go against them in persecution. But he identifies something else here. It's not merely a human opposition to the church that we experience. Not just Smyrna, but any church throughout the history of the church and throughout the ages all the way to the end. There is another dynamic here, and this is what we want to take some time to emphasize. I introduced it last week. From a more fundamental perspective, from a spiritual perspective, the persecution that they're enduring from both the Jews and from the Gentiles is motivated not only by the natural sinfulness of the Jews and Gentiles, but also by a more nefarious source, Satan himself. And so he says at the end of verse 9, these Jews who are gathering together really form a synagogue of Satan. And those who are going to cast you into prison, while in one sense was a decision of the governor and Roman officials, he says, in fact, it is the devil who is about to cast some of you into prison. And so we ask the question then, what is the connection between the evil acts of men and the activity of Satan? Well, again, just what we briefly noted last week was Satan's activity in the opposition to Christ during his ministry. And we're familiar with that. 
one of the highlights of this being exposed is in Jesus' very intense confrontation with the Jewish leaders in John chapter 8, in which he told them that they want to kill him because they want to do the desires of their father, the devil. And so they were the religious respected and elite of that culture, the influencers, really the prime influencers of Judaism in the first century, and, and actually after that as well. And he says, no, you're not actually serving God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God that appeared on Mount Sinai. You are, in fact, serving Satan. And we saw as well how intimately Satan was involved in stirring up Judas in his betrayal. And so in John 13, it says that Satan had already put into the heart of Judas to betray him. And then later in the supper, Judas would go out and leave. And as he does so, the comment is made that Satan entered into his heart. And so at every point, the devil was involved and active in the opposition against Christ. But then we have a question here. What is precisely the way that Satan works in the opposition that he brings against Christ and against Christians? And so I want to answer this very briefly, and we'll look at some other aspects of this next week where he's going to bring it up again, where the church at Pergamum dwells where Satan's throne is. But I want to look at this briefly for our purposes this morning by noting that Satan exerts authority over unbelievers, though he does this in various degrees in various ways. In other words, it's not merely the Jews who had the synagogue of Satan, nor is it those who were responsible under the devil's influence who threw the Christians in Smyrna into jail. That is consistent with the way that Satan works in the world and his purposes. And scripture recognizes this. Although, unfortunately, many in the church do not. And that's why it's important to take just a little bit of time here. Many Christians either overemphasize Satan's role. Some of you come from churches that are on the extreme side of charismatics, in which there's sometimes what's referred to as the sovereignty of Satan. Satan is behind every tree. He's behind every door. And so much of what is done in that is to hide and overdo the purposes of Satan in someone's life. But then there's another extreme that goes more on our side and more and on general Protestantism or evangelicalism, and that is to underestimate the presence of Satan and the things that go on in this world. One noted this, that in a 2011 study, half of those who identified themselves as Christians said that Satan is a symbol, not a living being. Just a symbol. A symbol of evil, a symbol of bad, not a personal, malevolent, spiritual being that has the destruction of God's people and His truth as His objective and His agenda. So let me note just this. Scripture, however, has a very different view. Satan and the demons, as I noted, have a general authority over all unregenerate people. And I'm going to just look at this very broadly. First of all, Scripture notes that he has a general authority over unregenerate humanity. We're familiar with Paul's words. I've mentioned it a few times lately in Colossians 1.13, where he says that Christians were delivered from the domain of darkness, from the authority of darkness, from the control of darkness, from the kingdom of darkness. That is what Christians belong to before they came to Christ, and it's what everyone outside of Christ belongs to. Jesus described Satan in John 14, 30 as the ruler of this world. The ruler of this world. It's from the mouth of Jesus. John says this in 1 John 5, 19, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. All of these demonstrating that there is a general sense in which Satan is orchestrating and guiding and ruling over a kingdom of darkness, of unregenerate human beings to blind them to the gospel. And it is a highly organized system. It is not haphazard, and in fact, in many ways, it's not chaotic. It is very purposeful. Satan is a very intelligent being. The angels that fell with him and were cast out of heaven because of their rebellion against God came from all ranks within the angelic world, and now they make up the demonic realm. And again, just very briefly, passage you're familiar with, Ephesians chapter 6. As he's encouraging the church to put on the full armor of God, he says in verse 12, But our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. He's recognizing there not only the source of opposition against God's truth and against God's people, but also giving indication there of the highly organized manner at which Satan executes his purposes. As a matter of fact, 
he uses a very interesting term here when he says in verse 11, against the schemes of the devil. Although there's not always exact correspondence from the word used in Greek to English, there is a lot of connection here. It's the word that we get used as method. In other words, it's methodical, it's intentional, it's purposeful, it's planned. He uses the same term back in chapter 4 and verse 14, saying that there is the schemes of men, that men try to be crafty in their distortion of the church in deceitful scheming. And here, ultimately, he identifies the source of that, which is Satan. One said this, uh, referring to that passage, that in identifying the demonic realm under Satan, that it consists of evil spiritual forces of varying rank, authority, and capabilities, and all of them designed to bring havoc and opposition to God's truth. And what is it, ultimately, that he wants to accomplish? It is to blind man to the glory of Christ through lies and deception. And so Paul explains why the gospel is missed. Why can some read the testimony of God's glory revealed in Scripture and miss it and others see it? Well, he says this, those who do not see it, it is because in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, in saying that the servant of Christ should be gentle in his representation of the gospel in hopes that God would release them and they could escape, he says, the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. To do his will, and that's best taken as a reference to Satan. So he has a general authority over humanity. A general authority. And Satan has, as well, the power and authority, however, because of the darkness and corruption of man's heart. And that's important to understand. And I want to, again, just mention this. It is the authority he has, or let's say the authority that he has, is because of the corruption that is within us. In other words, we do not need Satan to sin. If God restricted all of Satan's activity, we would still sin, we would still reject God, we would still lie, steal, covet, be violent, immoral, and everything else. We don't need Satan to sin. Satan doesn't cause sin. And when God hardens a heart, he doesn't cause then that person to sin, such as with Pharaoh, and he hardened his heart, and we see other examples. He merely uses the natural sinfulness of a person's heart, and when God uses Satan to bring about judgment on a people, he merely uses him as his servant in an act of judgment. The cause and the origination of sin is within man himself is within man himself. And so when Satan deceives, he merely directs the sinner's heart consistent with his own fallen desires and natural rebellion. And then in the encouragement that he's going to give to Smyrna, and then God stands over that and even the purposes of Satan. Let me just mention this. In Acts chapter 4, we have this great testimony of the apostles after they had been flogged and rebuked for the testimony of Christ, they were praising God for his sovereignty over their persecution, and they connect it to the very persecution that was enacted against Christ himself. And so they said, you know, although it's already been noted that the persecution against Christ was influenced by Satan, and although all the people were acting wickedly and unjustly and according to their own desires, the apostles say this, that nothing occurred in the mounted opposition to Christ that was not according to the hand and the predetermined purpose of God. In other words, it only happened what God had predestined to occur. Luther famously said, the devil is God's devil. And so it is, and so he wants to remind the church of that as well. But let me note this as well, also. That Satan exercises a general authority over man. His purpose is to blind and deceive. And he also exercises a general authority over nations themselves. Again, I'm only going to mention this, but a couple of examples. We looked at Daniel chapter 10, where there was an angel over some pagan nations that were opposing the one sent to deliver an answer to David's, uh, Daniel's prayer. But in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, we have two interesting passages in the Old Testament in which the prophet is addressing in Isaiah 14 the king of Babylon and Ezekiel 28 the king of Tyre. 
And in doing so, he's addressing a human king in a real historical situation. But as the address goes on and he moves through his rebuke of these pagan rulers, he identifies the source behind them and he uses language that can only or not only but best to be understood as referring to the satanic power that is behind them. And then he goes on to confront the human king, which is ultimately then only a tool in the hand of Satan. Satan is also behind false doctrine. We'll note that next week, but let me just say Paul clearly identifies the doctrines that were disturbing the church at Ephesus in 1 Timothy 4.1 as the doctrines of demons. However, there is one point I want to emphasize a bit more because it connects the situation of Smyrna even more directly to our own experiences now. And that is this, that Satan directs the flow of ungodly culture and ideologies ultimately with the purpose of bringing persecution to God's people. So when we think about ideologies, when we think about the kind of things that run up and shape culture, that push culture in certain directions, that create in culture certain kind of values and value systems and perspectives of the world and worldviews, the scripture identifies that as being ultimately under the direction of Satan. That is, inasmuch as it is opposed to the knowledge of God and to the creative order and purposes of God. Let me just mention to you a familiar passage and let me make a connection here. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, as he's speaking to the church at Ephesus... Again, familiar words for many of you, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, this is outside before Christ, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world or this age, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest." He says that what typified your life and what typifies the life of the world outside of Christ is you walk according to the course of this age. The, again, the thinking, the value system of this age. One described it in this way, uh, referring to this age. Various non-Christian religions, ideologies, philosophies, values, and economic systems as well as to the more mundane, but the equally powerful influence of peer pressure, fashion, and media. These influences provide a script for living day-to-day -day life apart from God and his values. So God, at the very least, wants us to be aware that life is not neutral, that the TV shows you watch are not neutral. The music you listen to is not neutral. The things that you study in school are not neutral. They are tending toward a direction. They are promoting a truth. They are promoting a worldview. Media wants to create a story in which they frame reality, and they've done that very well, in which you think within certain parameters in a certain way. It shapes the value, not by argument, but by feelings and by emotion, and they make you feel differently about things. One of the ways that that is most evident in our culture today, in our moment in history, is through the ideology of the LGBTQ movement. And I want to mention that and just use that as a test case, as it were, because I believe, as, as do many others, that that will be one of the key ways that persecution comes against the church. Let me explain that briefly. How is that to happen? Well, first of all, as with every ideology that is from the, the spirit of the air that works in the sons of disobedience, it begins ultimately with a rejection of creation. But the rejection of creation, and so does the LGBTQ movement. It rejects the creation of man as made in God's image as male and female. And the ultimate expression of that within the marriage of a man and a woman in a lifelong covenant. Now how does he use that then to persecute the church? Well, let's just think through this in some steps. First is to do just what I mentioned. To deny God's creation of male and female in the covenant of marriage as the only righteous expression of sexuality. To remove the possibility of children as a key purpose of sex. And to redefine the essential bond of marriage as emotion and promote sex as having no more meaning than personal fulfillment. And so he separates the idea of sexuality from the covenant of marriage. And that is the first tactic. 
It make, he makes it something on his own. Then he redefines marriage, no longer set apart from every other relationship by that specific act of, of sexual activity as the bond that demonstrates the covenant reality of it. And he makes it, again, just an emotional experience. Well, okay, so we have the beginning of it. And then, one way is then by normalizing the behavior that used to be offensive so that no longer is it offensive, but you seem to be the one that's odd for thinking otherwise. That is through the use of media. And so I'll make a comment on that later. But another way, in a more, more general or subtle way that we see in our time, is that he subjectivizes personhood. In other words, what are we dealing with in the transgender movement? The idea that reality is located very narrowly to my own experience. It's how I define myself. That's why we can have an innumerable, it seems like, kind of genders. Why? Because it's not attached to biology. It's not attached to reality. It's attached to the way that I feel about myself, which could change at any time. And so what it does is it attacks the idea of personhood to a subjective experience, personal feelings about myself, which become then the highest point of self-actualization, the highest definition of who I am and the experience of what it means to be me, to have been to my essence, as it were. And once you do that, then sexuality in our culture, again, there's influences of why, has been then made the primary aspect of self-definition and personhood. So what is someone in our contemporary culture, you're either heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, or asexual, or pansexual, or whatever, sexual. That's not really the point. The point is that becomes the very identity of that person. They are identified by a sexual label. And then, once that switch has been made, Anything that refutes the validity of an individual's identity now becomes hate and violence. Hate and violence. Not an opposing view, but violence against that person. And so now we've redefined violence. Violence is no longer limited to actual physical acts of harm, but to a subjective sense of hurt caused by an, to an individual. Hurt feelings, a, hurt, a diminished sense of self-worth, and so forth. And that's considered violence violence against them. And once you've done that, or as a, as a part of doing that, the cultural feelings are moved in that direction and strengthened in that direction through inundating the media with a constant presence and barrage of likable, friendly, successful, intelligent, wise, loving, homosexual characters to such a degree that abnormality, not so much in the intellectual thought, but in the way that we feel about life and others around us, the abnormality becomes anyone who would see an issue with that or a problem with it. And so media shapes, it tells a story, it frames reality, it gives us a worldview. And then, where the real issue comes, is it attaches this then to legislation, to laws. That's happening across nations across the world. It is illegal then to cause such violence and hate against a person by in any way delegitimizing their view of themselves, their personhood, their self, their sexual identity. That becomes then a means of hate and it becomes a means of violence that needs to be, as any act of hate and violence, protected by the law. It needs to be protected by the law. We talked about that a while back with the legislation being pushed against conversion therapy. I'm not condoning conversion therapy and the things that go under it, but that has been made an umbrella, a Trojan horse, for any opposition whatsoever, any shape or form that in any way delegitimizes somebody's sexual identity. And so that is what's happening. As a matter of fact, the Southern Poverty Law Center, who has occasional sort of influence in law and legal decisions, but nonetheless, lists such groups as Alliance Defending Freedom, James P. Kennedy Ministries. He was a pastor. He's now with the Lord down in Florida. Family Research Council, Family Research Institute, and others as hate groups. Hate groups that need the protection of law to, uh, for people need the protection of law from them in order to be protected from the violence that they bring against humanity and against our nation. And they are mixed in legitimate groups then with actual hate groups such as Westboro Baptists and others that true Christians would adamantly deny as being outside of Christ by their actions. 
And you throw in with this a distorted gospel that has taken over much of uh, Christianity, professing Christianity that is humanistic and man-centered, and it has a view of love without repentance, without transcendence, and without holiness. And the church gladly joins in in the cultural, cultural condemnation and says, well, we need to be loving as well and not hurt their feelings and say and deny Genesis 1, deny Genesis 2, deny God's good purposes for humanity and for flourishing and what's good for that individual and call it love. In reality, it's a form of hate. And so we're not so far removed from this. This isn't just something as a theological curiosity. We have to understand the way Satan works. And so that's in part why Jesus reminds them that, look, there's more going on here. There is a spiritual force that was also behind the very crucifixion of the Lord whom you serve and is behind the hatred of you as well. And we could add many other things to this. Critical theory, abortion, and so forth. What we need to understand is that when we think of ideologies that have caused such misery, not only just in our recent history, Marxism, communist nations want to eliminate the church. That's what's happening in many places. These ideas are not merely evil. They are demonic, satanic ideologies ultimately aimed at blinding men and persecuting the church. And so then as a church, we need to remember that our battle is not merely against flesh and blood, which was Paul's encouragement in Ephesians chapter 6. And so we fight a spiritual battle with spiritual weapons ultimately. That fleshes itself out, yes, in the real world of human activities and laws and so on and so forth, but that's not ultimate, that's secondary. So Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 10, chapter 4. He says, or chapter 10, verse 4, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience to Christ. Commenting on that one, helpfully said, This is God's battle, and we are to employ God's methods of prayer, proclamation, and persuasion. And be willing to undergo pain in doing so. The result will be that whatever the particular outcome for Christians, such as martyrdom or estrangement, God's glory will be assured. And so that's how Christ comforts the church here. And so back at Smyrna. He says, look, you're going to have tribulation, you're going to have suffering, some of you are going to be thrown into jail, some of you are going to die, and it is because there is a spiritual force behind this, but I'm sovereign over it, I'm in absolute control of what you will suffer. And so he demonstrates that by saying, behold, the devil is about to cast some from among you or some of you into prison in order that you may be tested. In order that you may be tested. Behold sounds an alarm. It alerts them to what is about to take place. It's a call to listen, to be prepared. And the very announcement by Christ of what's going to happen is in itself a demonstration of his sovereignty over it. This is going to happen. This is what's going to happen. This is how long it's going to happen. And I'm telling you because I'm bringing it ultimately as a part of my purposes. Now what will they suffer? What will they suffer first? He says, well, they will suffer prison. The devil is about to cast some of you into prison. The idea has watch or guard, and there's many uses, but the idea is just prison. It's prison. It's a place of being kept, a place of being contained either for a waiting trial or as a punishment. And the prisons, as you are probably well aware of, were not the same as the prisons now where you get three square mirrors a day. They try to make sure the temperature's not too hot or too cold. You have a mattress to lay on. That wasn't the condition of the prisons back then. There were various conditions of custody, to be sure, and we see that in the apostle's life. He is, in one instance, chained in a cave in darkness, and in another instance, living in a rented quarters in which he can freely enter, have intercourse with other people who can come and visit him, and he can preach the gospel. But these were nasty places, the prisons, most of them, usually involved much deprivation of things, even such as food and water, an absence of light, Acts 16.29, you'll remember in the jailer when the earthquake happened, he brought lights in to where they were. Why? Because they were in darkness, in the inner recesses. I saw a picture of that once. It always comes to my mind if you've ever seen the movie Ben-Hur. Uh, but anyway, uh, I think it was his mother 
or a sister who had leprosy, and he goes, they go to find her, and she, they just keep going back and back and back into the prison, and, and then she's there in this, this horrid condition. Well, there's, there's truth to that. That's what it was like. They didn't bring them food. They didn't bring them medical attention for their wounds. You can remember Paul was often beaten before he was put into prison. They had to even come and rescue him. You remember the Roman centurion because they were beating him. And so he didn't have band-aids and bandages and ways to clean the wound. They were simply put in these horrid conditions with the wounds that they suffered. There was no medical attention. They were often put into chains. You see that throughout. Sometimes stretched out to a painful position and held there. Paul noted that he relied on churches and when he was in these such conditions, such as Philippi and Epaphroditus, who was a messenger and a minister to his need, they had to bring him the supplies that he needed. And for some of those who didn't have those supplies or others to bring them, they died just withering away there in those conditions. It also came, the prison did, with a stigma of shame. Paul saw himself, as he referred to himself often, as a prisoner of the Lord. He knew that it was a shame to the world, but to him it was his glory to suffer for Christ. But he knew the perspective of the world, and he therefore acknowledged the faith of those who were not ashamed to visit him. And you can remember Onesiphorus. In 2 Timothy 1.16, he says, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Many Christians would have been. They would have been afraid to associate with Christ who was in prison or with Paul who was in prison because of Christ because they testified to the same. They would have been ashamed at the ridicule that would have come from others by visiting one in prison because of the ridicule that it brought culturally. And so he says, some of you are going to be cast into prison. Be ready. Some of you are all going to be afflicted, some in different various degrees. This has the idea of stress, distress, and troubles in its various forms. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in the world you will have trouble. So in one sense, it's to all of the church, but in a heightened sense, some parts of the church experience it to greater degrees. And it's most likely here that their poverty, which is referring here to material poverty, which is why he gives the contrast, you are spiritually rich, materially poor, most likely here with an added kind of stigma to it as well because it was a very affluent kind of culture. And no doubt some of their poverty is being identified here because of their testimony of Christ, how it excluded them from certain economic advantages or for their circle of uh, society where they may have normally walked and lived and moved and breathed and now they were put outside of that. And the, the consequence for some was disadvantage and poverty and that was a part of the affliction as well. But he says, be ready. This is what comes with the testimony of following Christ in their situation. And as it has for believers throughout, as it does now in our times and will to some degree and in some way and in some manner and some form to us as well. And so he says, don't be surprised, Jesus had told his disciples, when the world hates you because they hated me. Peter reminded to the Christians they were suffering that Christ suffered on your behalf, leaving you for an example to follow him. And so he says, be ready for this. Be ready to follow Christ all the way. And again, it's just a part of that overall, not only hostility of the world against the message, but that hostility stirred up among the world through various means by the instigation of the evil one. But he wants them to remember, I'm in control. Don't think that things are chaotic. Don't think that, think that things are out of control. So he says in verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Why would they fear? Why would we fear? Well, there's all kinds of reasons. They were, could fear the, the possibility of loss. They could fear the possibility of pain. They could fear the possibility of failure, that they would let Christ down when they were put in that situation. And Christ assures them, do not be fe to fear what you are about to suffer. How could they not fear? Well, let me give you just a few reasons. They were not to fear, knowing Christ was in control, and that the persecution that they would experience was measured out by him and brought to them according to his purposes to increase their faith and spiritual strength. 
Indeed, he told them, some of you are about to be tested. You are about to be tested by the activity of Satan, but that testing will only prove the glory and the gold of your faith. Here's something amazing. He says in Romans chapter 5, Paul, who knew suffering, he said, we exalt in the grace of God in which we stand. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. He says, and not only this, but we exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. How could they not fear because it was measured by Christ and as they trusted Christ in the midst of it, as they were tested and came forth faithful, that their faith would be strengthened and that they would know even in their suffering a depth of the love of God that they would not know apart from their suffering. That seems strange to us because we're not in that situation. But it's helpful for us to gird our minds with that truth now. They can have no fear because they're not suffering alone. Because Christ is uniquely present in the suffering of his people and will uniquely manifest his presence to them. You can think, for example, of when the risen Christ confronted the Apostle Paul as he was going around persecuting the church, throwing some into prison, having others put to death, and so forth. That you remember what Jesus said, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Those whom you are persecuting, at least one part of that, are those who belong to me. I'm in union with them. I am in them. And they belong to me. And he says, you're persecuting them. But Paul himself would later, after becoming a believer, through the sovereign work of the Lord, know this kind of encouragement himself. He would know the encouragement that the people were receiving whom he afflicted, and now as the afflicted, he would know that encouragement. And so he says in Acts 23, 11, the Lord stood by his side and said, after telling him what he was to do, he said, take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. And the Lord is reminding him, you are not going alone. I am with you. I am by your side. Paul, at the very end of his life, who knew faithfulness and suffering for the gospel and had friends that were willing to stand with him, but not always. And so he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says in verse 16, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. So he was left alone to face whatever was coming alone. No human comfort was given to him. But he says in verse 17, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. And so he says, do not fear because it's measured by God. It's merely a testing for your faith, which if you're faithful will shine forth as gold. Do not fear because it's measured by God and in the midst of it he will stand with you and he will be with you. He will not leave you alone. He will strengthen you and undergird you. This is probably at least part of what Paul meant in Philippians 3.10 when he says that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. As I noted before, there is a letter that comes to us uh, through the annals of history and it was a letter actually from the church of Smyrna. Uh, and this is a reminder, I mentioned it last week uh, in brief, and essentially this letter was written to another church to encourage them. And at the heart of the letter, although it mentions other martyrs and other things that were going on, essentially it was to hold up the martyrdom of Polycarp. And Polycarp, some of you will remember, was a disciple of the Apostle John himself. And he actually, in 115 AD, became the bishop of this church in Smyrna, and ultimately he died there as well. And so they're writing after this martyrdom of Polycarp to encourage another church, and then writing to uphold his faith and his courage in the midst of it as an example for all to follow. And so in this letter of the Smyrnans, uh, they note this, speaking of the martyrs in general first, not one of them let a sigh or a groan escape them, thus proving to us all that these holy martyrs of Christ at the very time when they suffered such torments were absent from the body, or rather, that the Lord then stood by them and commun communed with them. Another 
Later in the letter, it notes this. Presently, the instruments prepared for the funeral pile were being applied to him. So now he's referring to going back to the testimony of Polycarp specifically. And they originally, as I think I noted before, wanted to put him to the beast, but they weren't able to do that. And so they decided that he would die by fire. And so they're going to collect the, the wood for the fire. I knew the last time that the Jews were leading that charge, this, this uh, decision came amidst the angry and furious shouts of the crowds. But here this other note is added, that presently the instruments prepared for the funeral pile were applied to him, that is Polycarp, and as they were also on the point of securing him with spikes, he said this, Let me be thus, for he that gives me strength to bear the fires will also give me power without being secured by you with these spikes to remain unmoved upon the pile. They therefore did not nail him, but merely bound him to the stake. He knew a communion with the Lord. He knew a strength of the Lord in the midst of it, which many of the early martyrs knew. And we would say as a little side note here, not all of the martyrs. Even in Smyrna, there's accounts that some that did end up turning when they were faced with giving their lives or faced with the torture. There were some through the history of the church who actually failed in that time, but then later repented and came back and gave their lives later. Some just abandoned all together, and we have a letter of Pliny from the 2nd century A.D. that talks about that, that some Christians, when they were faced with uh, either suffering torture or death or uh, burning incense to the Roman emperor, they abandoned their Christian faith. And Pliny himself, a pagan ruler in the Roman Empire, said that a true Christian wouldn't do that. So it wasn't that they were all that way, but many were. Many were, and Polycarp was. And they weren't too many years removed from this very letter, less than two decades removed from this very letter of Christ. And he demonstrated the truthfulness of the words of Christ here. So there's cannot fear because God's measured it out and is testing them so that their faith would be proven. They could not fear because Christ is with them in their suffering. He will not leave them. He will undergird them and strengthen them. They could not fear because it points to our weakness and dependence upon God and makes more real and lively in the heart the hope of the resurrection. The hope of the resurrection. This is a little footnote. Paul knew that to some degree. Even the great Apostle Paul, if anybody had fortitude, if anybody had courage and strength, if anybody faced down the lions and, and the death and the consequences of following Christ, it was the Apostle Paul. And yet even he in his own life was brought to such despair at times because of what faced him that he came close to seeing the potential to be weak. And he was pointed to... The resurrection of Christ. So he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he says, We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, for our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Paul didn't even want to live. He was afraid of the things that were coming. And he said, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And delivered us from so great a peril of death. Of course, eventually he wouldn't. But he says it was making him to look to the resurrection, to rely on the strength which only God can give in Christ. Again, a note from that letter of Smyrna says this, talking about when they started the fire. It said he, the letter says, The wicked persecutors, seeing that the body could not be consumed by fire, commanded the executioner to draw near to him and to plug his sword into him. And when he had done this, such a quantity of blood flowed forth that the fire was extinguished. That's at least one account of it. And upon seeing this, the whole multitude were astonished that such a difference should be made between the unbelievers and the elect, of whom this one, bishop of the Catholic Church in Smyrna, was most admirable, apostolic, and a prophetic teacher of our times. The fortitude at which they faced it, the ways that they saw God's presence evidenced among them as they went forward to die for him, made an impact to some degree even on those who were witnessing the unbelievers who were witnessing let me know a fourth reason they shouldn't fear and that we shouldn't fear. Because God is good and he knows his children. And it will not be more than he will give the strength to endure. No temptation, no testing, no trial has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And our God is faithful. 
and he will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able. As the suffering, so for those who are his faithful ones, he will give the strength to endure it. He will give the strength to endure it. He will give the strength to undergird it. He will give strength not merely as one distance who has power, but he will give strength as one who is near, who has also experienced the same kind of suffering for you. We do not have a high priest, and this is resurrection language. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. He can sympathize with our weakness in chapter 2. He had to be made like his brethren, verse 17 of Hebrews, so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in things to pertaining to God, to make propitiation for a sin. We considered briefly, very briefly, what Christ suffered on the cross. It was, in one sense, to see the reality of sin and what he endured for us, underwent for us. But there's also an encouragement for believers to know that he underwent it for us, that he knows what it's like. Any pain that we can experience in life, Christ has experienced it more and overcome. And he can be sympathetic and merciful. But he knows how long, he knows what it is, and so he encourages this way and says that whatever you endure, I have measured it out by my sovereign hand. He says you will have in verse 10, tribulation for 10 days. For 10 days. Not nine days, not 11 days, not 12 days, not eight days, but 10 days. Now the question is, is this a literal 10 days or it is a metaphor for a period of time? Since there are no markers to suggest a figure of speech, it's probably best to see it as a literal 10 days. But the encouragement is primarily this, that it is measured. His infinite knowledge has already determined what you will suffer and how long you will suffer, and it will not last one moment that it needs to last for your good and his glory. And when he is finished with it, you will be finished, and you will enter into your heavenly home. And this is the last point. And you will receive the covenant promise of hope. And look what he says. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Will not be hurt by the second death. What is the promise? Well, the exhortation is to be faithful unto death. And the promise is that there is a reward. There is a reward. I will give to you the crown of life. Follow me unto death. Take up your cross and follow me. Develop within ourselves the attitude of the Apostle Paul who said, I die daily and be faithful and be faithful. But he gives some other encouragements here. Let's just observe them. One is this. It's a call to accept the lesser suffering in place of the greater suffering. It's a call to accept the lesser suffering in place of the greater suffering. What do we mean here? To die here is inevitable. To die here is appointed for a man to die once, and then comes the judgment. So we're going to die. He says, you're going to die. Not all in the way that you're potentially going to die, some of you, but you're going to die. Better to accept what comes now and find encouragement by knowing that what is after and on the other side of that death is far greater. The death that you will die here because of the testimony to Christ is a small thing compared to those who will die outside of Christ and experience a second death which is eternal. He who can overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The second death. The one that is to come. This reminds us of Jesus' own words in Matthew 10, 28. I think it's verse 28. He says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but have no power over the soul but rather fear him that can destroy both soul and body. Where? In hell. In hell. He says, yes, there's, there's going to be trouble, but this trouble is far less than that will come for those who are willing to forsake Christ to avoid it. As a matter of fact, it's interesting, isn't it? That in Revelation 21.8, in the midst of describing the glories of heaven, 
He twice, in chapter 21 and in chapter 22, mentions those who are outside of heaven. And in verse 21.8, he leads off the description of those in this way. He says this, they are the cowardly and the unbelieving. The cowardly and the unbelieving. It's kind of like what Jesus said to those in the, in the parable. There's a receiving of the gospel, but when persecution comes, they fall away. Not worth it. Not worth it. And just as a footnote that we're very aware of, if we don't have a right gospel, that's the kind of conversions that we produce. If the gospel is about meeting felt needs alone, if the gospel is about God somehow just being the one who's going to walk with you in life and make no demands on you, if the gospel doesn't rise above that, then those will be the ones who fail when the time comes and they're tested and they would be thrown into prison or face death. And so he says, be faithful because the death here is temporary and even the death that you experience, as bad as it is, it's tempered with the grace of Christ but the death to come to those outside of Christ is forever. Let me just read that. What is the second death? He says this in Revelation chapter 20. So this is the end of all things. This is going to happen. And he takes us to the future to look at this scene. And he says, And the sea gave up the dead. He said that they were judged, brought before, brought before God. Books were opened. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books, plural, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades were given up, uh, gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then the death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So yes, did Polycarp go up in flames? Was his flesh burned from him as was Tyndale and many others yes but that was over Christ stood with him in it and he entered into his heavenly reward and this is what he says but those who are turned away and want to avoid the flames and were willing to deny Christ there is a second death and it will be far worse in the letter to the Smyrnans again uh, it's record, uh, reported that when urged to repent from his Christianity to avoid the wild beast and fire, this is exactly what Polycarp appealed to you. He says, call them, i.e. the beast, for we have no reason to repent from the better to the worse, but it is good to change from wickedness to virtue. He again urged him, I will cause you to be consumed by fire. Should you despise the beast and not change your mind? Remember, Polycarp was 86 years old at this point. He was an old man and they kept appealing to that. By, by have mercy on yourself, essentially. But Polycarp answered and said this, You threaten me with fire that burns for a moment and is soon extinguished. For you know nothing of the judgment to come and the fire of eternal punishment reserved for the wicked. But why do you delay? Bring what you wish. He no doubt had these very words of Christ ringing in his ears. This death that you're going to give me will pass. But what you're going to face if you persist in your rejection of Christ will last forever. So bring on the death. I'm ready. And again, that's the grace of God. And what is the end? It is because it's, we're giving the lesser for the greater, but also that there is a reward. And so again, he says, and I will give him the crown of life. I will give to you the crown of life. And, and there, just notice the personal nature of that. He's speaking directly, saying, I'm going to give it to you. Christ says from heaven, I'm going to give it to you if you're faithful. The crown of life. It's an imagery of success. The crown being spoken of here is most likely that crown that was given to the victor at the games. And remember, as was in other major cities, Ephesus included, having the games there was a significant part of the identity of the city. When they would come in and do various uh, athletic events and the victor would wear a crown it's the same kind of crown here they would be accustomed to this language and he's saying though the crown you will receive is not that temporary fading crown but it is the crown of life and you will receive that crown because you stand in him who has overcome and so here is the resurrection here is the resurrection why can he give this promise? Let me just give you two passages, and I'm just going to mention them. 
Remember, this is a spiritual battle. This is what Satan wants to do. Satan has one agenda, to bring as much dishonor and uh, take away as much glory as he can from God and to cause as much hurt as he can to his image bearers and particularly those who belong to Christ. That's his agenda. That's his objective. Whether he does it with a scowl and a sword or whether he does it with a smile and a handshake, that's his objective in all of his forms. But the Christian says, whatever form it comes, the confidence of us that we have is that he has been defeated. Listen to the words of Paul in Colossians 2.15. When he, speaking of the crucifixion, well, let me go back to 14. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, he's saying that we had debts against us, we had the weight of sin, it's been canceled out, it was hostile to us, but he, being Christ, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's Good Friday. When he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. That's implying the resurrection. Because he defeated. You can have the synagogue of Satan come against you. You can have the devil throw some of you in jail. But you don't need to fear death because it has been overcome and the sting of death has been removed. We read out of 1 Corinthians 15 last time. Let me just remind you. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of the sin of sin is the law. So yes, those who die outside of Christ, there is a sting. There is the conviction. There is the condemnation. There is the consequence of rejecting Christ. There is the justice that will be upheld for every deed committed against him, which is a lifetime. But for those who are in Christ, that's exactly what Christ bore. That's why the sky went dark. That's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because all of that justice, all of that holy justice and righteous justice and wrath of a holy God was borne by Christ. He endured it. He drank it down. He underwent the suffering for us. And so the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. May we uphold this and, and hold this to us. And he says you're going to receive the crown of life, which there are other crowns. There's the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy, the crown of glory in 1 Peter. Really, it's just this. It's another way of saying you're going to re receive the fullness and the completeness of all of the salvation that Christ has accomplished to you. Glory, righteousness, life, blessing, all of it. You're going to receive it. It is a part of the victory that you will gain in Christ who gives the victory to us. And I don't know exactly what it is, but I don't know what kind of grace exactly it was to experience some of those who went through the tortures they went through because of their sight and their understanding of what lay ahead of them. But in some measure, it's worth thinking about what Paul said in Romans 8. He said, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. I tell you, I don't know what that means exactly. But I can tell you this, it's a glory that was worth suffering for. And of Polycarp's martyrdom, to end with this, in the letter of the Smyrnians, it notes this, how he was now crowned with the wreath of immortality, having beyond dispute received his reward. And so, there it is. The one who was dead but has come to life, the one who is the first and the last, has declared that some of his church will suffer, but there's no need to fear. Though all of the hatred of unregenerate man, though all of the evil designs of Satan stand against you, it is measured, it is under his control, he will stand with you in it, he will prove your faith, and at the end he will give you a crown of glory, a crown of life, a crown of righteousness, and it will be worth it. It will be worth it. And so hold on, be faithful unto death is the encouragement and the call. Be faithful unto death. And look at the example of those who have gone before you. Let me just at least mention this one verse. He was giving similar encouragements to those who in Hebrews were 
suffering loss. He says, You have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a little while he who is coming will come and will not delay, and my, righteousness, my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, to a rejection of the gospel, but of those who have faith to the perseverance of the soul. And what is that faith? It is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. It is the faith that pleases God and believes that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. May God give us that faith. May He grow us in that faith. And as I noted before, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens as we each day choose to live for Him, as we make decisions to follow Him, as we spend time in His Word and in prayer and in fellowship with other believers, our faith is strengthened and so that as He brings increasing challenges to our lives, we're ready to face them. We've prepared ourselves for them. We've set our mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and that He then comes in and undergirds us to endure whatever it is He's called us to endure. Let me pray and then we'll sing a closing hymn. Father, thank You for... Your word, thank you for Christ. We are inadequate for these things. We're inadequate for all of it. We certainly can't come to you of our own, for we are dead. And so you met our inadequacy and our rebellion with the grace of Christ, with the work of the Holy Spirit who gives life. You brought to us not only the accomplishment of the gospel, but the power of that gospel to bring forth faith and repentance by the work of the Spirit to trust in you. And then you gave us the gift of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit, to live inside of your true children, to overcome the power of sin, that power having been broken, that now we can put to death the deeds of the flesh. You have given to us spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear those things that before we were deaf and blind to, to see the glories of Christ. And yet we see only very dimly, we see only very vaguely in many ways, though truly if we know you. And we ask you to help us to see them all the more. Help us to see your glory, O Christ. Help us to live for you. Help us to not to be entrapped by the seduction of this world and the vanities and the vain glories that pass away. Help us not to be entrapped by the passing pleasures of this world that rob us of seeking you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us, Lord. We need your help. We are weak and stumbling creatures. We have unbelief that remains in us. And we need you to make us not unbelieving, but believing. We all identify with that cry, I believe, help my unbelief. And for those who are here outside of you, may they not leave unchanged. And these things we pray in your matchless name, Jesus, who died for us, who rose for us, who right now intercedes for us, and who is returning for us. What a glorious day. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.